And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly, strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You know, I'm blown away by technological advances. It's been amazing to me to watch the way that technology has evolved even uh, in the past few years. Now, to be honest with you, that doesn't mean much coming from a guy like me. Uh, the reason I say that is, is because, just to give you an example... Uh, in the middle of the night, on a number of occasions, we've had one of our fire alarms start beeping. Uh, now, here's where I'm at. Uh, I've been known to, at 2 in the morning, climb up on a ladder, pull down the fire alarm, pull out the battery, notice that it's still beeping, not know what to do. And so I stick it into a drawer that we have started to call the fire alarm graveyard. Because it's where all of our fire alarms go to die. And we right now probably have something like four or five of our fire alarms in that drawer, waiting for somebody who's advanced enough to fix them. So when I say that technological advances are impressive and even surprising, doesn't mean much. Tell you what it does mean much. When somebody like the co-founder of Google, Sergey Brin, says that he is amazed and surprised by how far we have come technologically, specifically with artificial intelligence. 
Now, it's, I don't know if you've been following the storyline, but it's amazing what they're doing with artificial intelligence. In fact, uh, we've recently uh, heard from guys like Elon Musk, the guy that uh, is in charge of Tesla, who has said that uh, we have advanced so far with technology uh, that actually all of us ought to have a basic universal income. That's right. Each of us should just get a paycheck, not for doing anything, just for being human. Why? Because robots are taking all of our jobs. Now, you kind of want to laugh at that, but that's kind of scary. He, he actually believes that robots will be better doctors, better lawyers, and better uh, manufacturers than humans are. Robots are going to take our jobs. And, and things have gotten to the point where uh, they are so encouraged by the technological advancement that they've said, hey, what can't we do? I bet we are getting so good at this technology stuff that we actually could make mankind immortal. Now, here's the way that they've said they're going to do this. It's, it's happened in a number of different ways. Uh, but uh, one person, uh, and remember, these are leaders in our country, the founder of SiriusXM said that she believes, uh, she believes, and she has a, a nonprofit that attempts to do this, that we will be able to upload mind files to a computer called cyber consciousness. That's right. Your, your mind can be downloaded. Uh, that's got to be expensive. Uh, another Google exec believes that by 2045 you'll be able to merge the human neocortex with a cloud-based artificial intelligence. Now, that's kind of scary this Sunday morning, isn't it? But you know what's interesting? Uh, though they have achieved so much technologically, and the, the ceiling of what they believe they could do is actually help man live forever, what we know is there's a basic misunderstanding about the nature of who we are. See, we are not just bodies. We are bodies with souls given by God. And the only one that is able to save us and to help us with our death problem is God Himself. See, we know from the Scriptures that only God is able to defeat the enemy that all of us are plagued with fear by. See, none of this that we've talked about this morning so far takes into account the greater enemy that no amount of technology has or will be able to defeat, and that's death. He is the enemy that no one escapes. See, we need something greater than technology to save us from death. Well, we're right back in our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning, where we've been following the amazing true story of Jesus. And you'll notice that so far we have seen Jesus do a number of amazing things, right? So Jesus, so far, we've seen him give the paralytic the ability to walk. He has lifted him up and allowed him to walk away. Uh, we've seen him heal many other sick folks. We've seen him expel legion of demons, thousands of demons at one time with his authority and power. Uh, we've also seen Jesus go dog whisperer on a hurricane. He said, sit, and we saw the hurricane heal. That's the kind of God that we're talking about. That's who Jesus has showed himself to be. And all along the way, everybody is left amazed. Well, all of this really is precursor this morning to the greatest miracle that we have seen thus far. It's where he raises a little girl from the dead. See, in Mark 5, 21 to 43, uh, we're about to see uh, Jesus do something very extraordinary. Uh, in this text, which is kind of like a sandwich, now don't get hungry yet, we're not done, but it's like a sandwich, uh, and the bread is really a, a story about a girl who Jesus is going to raise from the dead. But in the middle, he stops the meat section to tell us a brief account about how on the way to heal this girl, he heals a woman who's been struggling for 12 years with blood uh, that has been coming from her. 
Now just think about this. This is really important this morning. Uh, You'll notice that Jesus heals a woman who's been sick for 12 years. And how old is the little girl that he heals? 12 years old. And how many disciples are there? And do you know what this means? Probably nothing. (laughs) But it's interesting, right? And so this morning, what we are going to see, and the big idea that we're going to be looking at is this, that only Jesus can stop death and silence his taunts. Only Jesus can stop death and silence his taunts. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We see this first in the desperation that drives a man to Jesus in verses 21 to 24. You see, desperation drive a man to the feet of Jesus. Now, you'll notice in the first couple of verses that crowds greet Jesus as soon as he hits the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm guessing this is Capernaum, that's his home base. That's where he keeps on going back to. And as soon as he hits the shore, the crowds come running. And amongst the crowds, there's one who stands out, a man named Jairus, who is, we are told, a a ruler of the synagogue, probably one of the elders, one of the leaders who had spiritual oversight of the people of God there. And up to this point, uh, this, this is interesting because you'll notice that as we've been tracking along, anytime you see a Jewish leader, anytime you see a, a Pharisee or a scribe, uh, there is this increasing animosity and hostility towards Jesus. Things get worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, Jairus shows up. And Jairus, for some reason, isn't angry or hostile with Jesus. Instead, he's desperate for healing and help that he believes only Jesus can offer. Uh, You'll notice in verse 23 that in front of this great crowd, including the Pharisees and scribes who probably were angry that Jairus was running to Jesus, he runs to him with reckless abandon, seemingly unconcerned with what anybody thinks, throwing himself at the very feet of Jesus. And he implores him earnestly. And look what he says in verse 23 as he speaks to Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Jesus went with him. Now, I love what happens in this scene. You know, there's fear here with him over the looming death of his daughter, and it propels him to separate from the pack of the Jesus haters. And, and here's a man who is desperate, desperate to get to Jesus. Now, let me just ask you this morning as we begin, I believe it's important for all of us just to ask ourselves are we this morning desperate for Jesus? Are you desperate for Jesus because you know that you need hope and help in the face of enemies like sickness and death that no earthly doctor can help you with? You know, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you know someone like that this morning. And if you don't, you will. In fact, I'm guessing some of us uh, are right there this morning who are struggling with these kinds of questions, these kinds of fears about what's going to happen with my health, what's going to happen with my sickness. I'm feeling good today, but it just feels like I get sick at any moment. Maybe you're a hypochondriac. And this is a message for you today. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, this is a message for everybody today. We serve a powerful Jesus. See, this morning, maybe you feel it in a more intimate way, though. You know that death looms. Maybe you are actually, this morning, controlled by the fear of death this morning. Or maybe you don't think about death much at all. 
That's a lot of us, I believe. In fact, I think that most of us this morning probably fit in that category of people that just don't think about death and don't like to think about death. We are far, far removed from situations like the pastors who used to put the skulls on their desk just to remind themselves daily of the frailty of humanity. Uh, In fact, I was absolutely shocked one time when I showed up to a friend of mine's museum that he built in his house, and I saw this weird-looking thing immersed in liquid and glass on uh, on his mantle. And I said, dude, what is that? It looks like a head. He said, it's a head. I said, what? He said, yeah, it's a shrunken head. I bought that. It just, it helps remind me of the fragility of life. And I was like, this is creepy. Right? But mainly because it's creepy, but we also live in a culture where people don't die, they just disappear, right? Like we have done as best we can do at removing ourselves from the process of death. You know, I bet some of you, uh, you can probably remember some of our older saints when you used to, when somebody would die, actually prepare the body yourself in the home. Maybe that's too far for you. I've met people who have done that. But now we have created all kinds of uh, really helpful systems uh, to keep us at a distance from death. And they're not bad, but we've got doctors and nurses and morticians so that really we do not have to expose ourselves to death and we don't think about death like previous cultures have thought about death. And so many of us don't deal with it until the brokenness of this world that is death invades our lives. And usually we are not ready for life to take the safety off and expose us to death of someone we love or even ourselves. See, death, it doesn't make appointments. It shows up when you're not ready. And as humans, we cannot, we must not ignore the meaning of death. So if you're a non-Christian, let me just beg you this morning, don't put off asking the important questions about what death means and what happens after you die. If you're a non-Christian, you might have been trained by culture not to think about that, but I would tell you this morning, there is nothing more important that you ought to be thinking about. See, the Bible says that death comes as a result of our sin, and that we all deserve the eternal wrath of God in the afterlife for our sin. And if that's right, and it is, we need help. I want you to know this morning, if that's you, we want our church to be a place that is safe for you to come and ask questions about death, what it means, and what your future is, and how we can help you. But if you're young, I think this is meaningful for you as well. You might be thinking like, great, I showed up for a sermon on death. I've got at least 60 years to worry about that. Or maybe 20. Maybe 20-year-olds seem old to you. But don't put off questioning what death means for you. And how you ought to live in light of death that is coming. Because you never know when death will come. I want all of our young people to live long lives. Don't you? Long, happy lives to the glory of God. But so many of us have seen Young men and women die all too soon, even children. It is never too soon to start thinking about being with Jesus and being before Jesus at death. Don't put that off. Think about it today. Take it seriously. You know, a good friend of mine once described death as God's bullhorn that seeks to awaken those who are spiritually asleep. And death ought to make us desperate for answers to these questions. So if we are rightly desperate, we need someone who can silence the fear of death and solve the problem of death, right? I mean, there's a problem of death and there are the fears of death that so entangle and ensnare us that it makes it hard to live life. Well, I want you to know this morning that we have great hope that there is an answer. There's good news for us who struggle with the fear of death and the problem of death. See, desperation for God is 
I believe, a glorious treasure for those who know that God promises that those who seek Him will find Him. If you were desperate for Him this morning, you were desperate for answers about what this life and what death really means, I want you to know that God is eager to show you the way. Well, look what happens. Here we have uh, Jesus cutting off. He's just met Jairus. They're on the way to save his daughter. And there's a break for another woman that we sort of focus on in verses 24 to 34. And here what we see is, is along the way, Jesus heals what earthly doctors cannot. Jesus heals what earthly doctors cannot. And we find that happening in Mark 5, 24 to 34. Let's look there and pick up the story and see what Jesus says happens next. So Mark 5. Beginning in verse 24, here's, here's what the word of the Lord says. It says, and, and Jesus went with him, with this man, and a crowd, a great crowd, followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, And touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And she said to her, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, anyone that struggled with chronic illness, chronic pain, um, struggles with, um, with uh, your, your mind, uh, with depression, Uh, Any of those things can relate to this woman who suffered under many doctors. And catch what happened. She only got worse. See, earthly doctors made things worse, not better. Which tells us, I think, something important. Uh, He's not saying that, that good doctors are a bad thing. Good doctors are a gift from God. Good doctors can help us. But here the point is that earthly doctors could not bring the healing that she needed. See, she suffered from some kind of menstrual bleeding for 12 years. And don't miss the profound effects that this would have had on her life. It's not just that she's sick. It was that. I mean, the sickness would have debilitated her physically, uh, but it also would have isolated her socially, and it would have alienated her spiritually. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that, uh, any good Jew know that, in, uh, as you look at uh, Leviticus 15, that there were laws about those who had bleeding like this, Uh, They were considered to be uncleaned and they would have had to be separated from their friends and their family because, you know, it's it's like cooties, you can catch that stuff. Uh, And and then also, we knew that uh, not only did they have to remain separate from them, uh, but we also knew that it meant that it, it would inhibit the way that you could go to worship God freely because you had to be clean to be in the presence of God. And so her life would have been absolutely affected in every single way by this sickness. And Dr. Oz, he had nothing for her. She needed more than earthly doctors. She needed the heavenly physician to heal and cleanse her. So in verses 28 to 29, you find this woman sneak up in this crowd on Jesus as they are jostling around Him and trying to catch the hymn 
of His garment. When in verse 29, it tells us that she does and she's healed immediately. Now just think about this. Twelve years of disappointment at the hands of the doctors of this earth's best efforts. And Jesus heals her in the blink of an eye. And you have to love the scene that follows in verse 30 as there's reaction around this. Jesus asked, who touched my garment? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus wasn't even trying in this healing, but Mark makes it sound like Jesus wasn't even trying to heal her, right? He's like, oh, somebody touched me. Who was that? And you got healed. See, Jesus just perceived that power had gone out from Him. I think this is great. Jesus then turns to the disciples and He says, who touched my garment? And it's actually, I think, really, under, really funny if you understand the situation, right? So here's Jesus and this massive crowd that is pressing on Him to the point that sometimes He has to jump in His boat just to get away, right? Now, if you're wondering, what does that look like? I've never been in a situation like that. I usually just like sort of drive into my house. I wait till the garage is down and then I go inside. So I don't know what it's like to be around this many people. Um, think about this. Just go Google how to get a train ride in India. Yeah, you just pull that up. And, and you imagine that you're fighting for the last seat to Mumbai on one of those trains. And as you notice, the crowds press in, potentially crushing some underneath them in their weight. And, and that kind of force... That's the kind of thing that Jesus is facing. It's kind of like a mobile mosh pit. People everywhere. And so think about this. In the midst of this, as everything's frantic, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, who touched me? Like, everybody touched you. What are you talking about? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Who touched you? Yet the woman, she knew. Why did she know? Because not only had Jesus touched her, but she understands that she had touched Jesus in a way that had profoundly changed her. And as a result, she knows she's speaking, He's speaking to her. And in fear and trembling, we're told that she fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth in verse 33. And then in verse 34, Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, this woman's faith changed everything. She believed that Jesus had the power to heal and that, and that changed everything for her. She received peace with God. And with man, because she was no longer unclean and no longer disabled. People didn't have to reject her or run from her anymore. They could actually touch her and be with her. But she believed that Jesus had authority over sickness and she was healed. Of course, we know here something important. She has not believed the gospel yet because Jesus has yet to go to the cross. She's believed as much as, as God has revealed of himself in Jesus, but there is still yet more to be seen. But she did believe what she knew and what Jesus claimed, which was that he had authority over all things, including sickness, in a way that no earthly doctor did. And Jesus changed everything. Now, in a minute, we're going to see something really important that Jesus isn't just a physician, but as I've said before, he's no less than a physician. In fact, later in the service, what I, I want to encourage you to do, we're going to have a time down front where if you are struggling with sickness, or you have someone who you love is struggling with sickness that you'd like to pray for, we're going to have our elders and their wives, some of them down here, down front for you to pray with. We'll have a time for that. Uh, we say that because we believe uh, James 5 is serious and, and it means something for us today. 
uh, where he says, James tells us, that if we are sick, if anyone is sick amongst you, that we must pray. And we need to ask the elders to pray for us, and that God is faithful to answer those prayers. How faithful? Well, um, faithful enough that when Elijah prayed, uh, he rained down fire from heaven. Faithful enough when Elijah prayed, uh, a little uh, child in his text was raised from the dead. And we are given that same kind of confidence when James calls the elders to pray for you. So we believe that God really does still heal the sick. I'm going to pray for that today. But catch this. I also hate the prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel. I think the prosperity gospel is actually the poverty gospel. Uh, I, you might be thinking, why do you keep on saying this? It's because people keep on believing this. Uh, there's this doctrine that, that you've probably heard in a lot of different ways, but it basically says, you know, uh, if you just believe it, you'll receive it, you blab it, and you grab it. it. It's that kind of gospel that says that really your greatest hope is in this life and what God gives you in this life. Let me just tell you that that is not the gospel of the Bible. And, and here's where it gets dangerous and sick in a way that's hard pastorally. It's whenever pastors tell their people that if you are sick, or if your child is sick and you're praying for them, and it doesn't work, the reason is is because you have a broken faith. And if your faith is broken in a way that it can't save your child from sickness, then what does that mean for you before a holy and righteous God is a sinner? You know, that's a horrible thing, isn't it? Uh, this is, I believe, uh, a dangerous teaching that we find all over the place. Um, many of you might remember the story that I told you one time about a really good friend of mine, a senior pastor that I was serving with. Uh, we were serving in ministry. It was my first job. I was associate pastor working for this guy, just 32 years old. All of a sudden, in a matter of 24 hours, was in the hospital. 24 hours later, he was being airlifted to the coast to get treatment because the doctors didn't know what to do with him. And in that, that time uh, between when he was airlifted to whenever um, we went to see him on the coast just a day later, we had a prayer service and everybody in the city showed up, pastors from all around. And there was one pastor I remember who came from a prosperity gospel church who prayed and he said, Father, I, I name it and claim it that literally that he will be saved. I, I, I'm believing it and I know that I'm going to receive it. Now, I'm not feeling good in my heart about what he's doing because I know what he's doing. Uh, I'm also not feeling good in my heart because I'm feeling really uh, like things are not looking good for my friend. And so uh, basically fast forward one day and I am taking my pastor's wife to the hospital as we enter the room to hear the wails of his mother and aunt over the fact that he has just died. Three days left behind a wife and two little kids. Now, it wasn't a week later when I was in a restaurant and I, I saw this pastor and he just broke down as he saw me and started crying. And he said, I'm sorry, I just don't know what understand, understand what happened. You know, I named it and I claimed it. I believed it. I thought I was going to receive it. Like, and he was having a breakdown because he believed that it said something about his faith being lacking. And I'll tell him what I told you. Brother, God is sovereign. We are not. And God is always good. His ways are higher than our ways. And all we can do now is know that we never bind God to do anything. And there's a great comfort in that because I know that there's nothing that I can do that can prevent God from achieving His will. And there's nothing that I can do to harness God and make Him do something. I'm so glad because God is so much a better God than I am. Hear me. It's a dangerous teaching. It's a dangerous teaching. But we also know, I think, that God sometimes chooses to miraculously heal. I'm praying that for my own wife right now. 
And sometimes it's in response to our prayers. So we do thunder the gates of heaven for healing, always trusting that God's response is better than we know. Knowing that God never says no, He just sometimes says later. See, we know as Christians that God, He is going to heal us. The question isn't if, it's when. And see, the question that we know that we have as the children of God is not if God will eventually make us well, but it's when He will. We know that one day Jesus has come back to heal all of our wounds and wipe away all of our tears. We know that. We just ask sometimes that He would give us an early down payment on that, don't we? But I think there's something else that we need to just be aware of here. That this woman didn't want to go through 12 years of bleeding so that she could be a testimony of the grace of God. Do you know anybody here that might sign up for that kind of ministry? I know I wouldn't. All kinds of ministries that the Lord has given us in this room that we would not have chosen ourselves. Amen? If we're honest. But let me just tell you this morning that the ministry that you want isn't always the ministry that you get because you're not God. God is always good. And His plans are always better than our plans. See, Jesus, you'll remember, He Himself asked for the cup of suffering, the wrath of God to pass. And it didn't. And so did Paul three times for the thorn in the flesh, but it didn't. And yet both endured, leaving you and me an example that gives us hope that our sickness doesn't mean that we've sinned worse than others. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. And it doesn't mean that God can't heal us. It's not what it means. So catch this. The question I believe is whether or not we are willing to take on whatever ministry might come our way to the glory of God. You know, you might be the husband who loves and serves someone deeply who gets dementia. It could be that you struggle your whole life with chronic pain. You might get cancer or somebody you love might, might get cancer. And in all of this, God calls us to trust our futures with Jesus. And so the question I think we're invited to ask in those moments and that we have to continue to ask ourselves is, is grace really amazing when life is not? Right? I mean, is grace still amazing when things get tough? Brothers and sisters, the answer from heaven is a resounding yes. So what if God calls you to revel in Jesus amidst chemo treatments? Or losing your baby? Or when your wife is losing her faculties? That might be you. Well, that's just a road stop. Leading to the main event. We see a third thing here, and that's something more impressive. Not only can Jesus heal, but Jesus actually has the power over death. If you think it's amazing that Jesus healed the sick, here's something even more amazing. Look what happens in verses 34 to 35. So check this out. We're back to the bread, right? Jairus. Back to him and his daughter. And the healing of the woman along the way, it was just a warm-up for what Jesus does here in verse 35 and down. Look, look there again in Mark. See what happens. In Mark 5.35, it says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler house, ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, 
why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was of 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So messengers interrupt the scene around Jesus performing this amazing miracle of healing a woman who's been sick for 12 years. They said, hold on, hold on. Like, this is great. We've got to tell you something. This is important. And it is. He says, Jairus, your daughter has died. So quit bugging Jesus. There's no need for Him to come anymore. We know He heals, but He doesn't raise the dead. But don't miss this. I think this is good shepherding from Jesus. Right? A, a good shepherding lesson from the good shepherd. Notice what He says to Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. In other words, Jesus brings hope into a hopeless situation. That's what the people of God get to do. We get to bring grace to a place where it seems like everything is lost. That's what He does. And Jesus says, don't fear losing your daughter. Don't fear death. Isn't that the message to Jairus? Don't fear losing your daughter. Don't fear, fear, fear death. Now, again, Jesus here grabs this inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the parents, probably because it's a small quarters, and they squeeze through the commotion, and they come to the people who, through the people who are weeping and wailing. And in verse 39, notice what Jesus says. He says, I don't know why you're making commotion and weeping. The child, she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, we can't say that. Jesus can say that. But you'll notice that everybody laughs at Jesus. Now, I think it's funny. Some people argue here that this girl is really just in a coma. Uh, she's not actually dead. Uh, and some people say that de- Jesus didn't die at the crucifixion, right? But it's pretty clear that she's dead, dead here. Like everybody's weeping, not because she's really sick, but because she's gone. And this scene is clearly one of death. And Jesus doesn't question here. I think it's important. Jesus in his statements, he doesn't question the reality of death. No, he's questioning the finality of death. What a beautiful statement. He's not, he's not questioning whether or not she's really dead. What he's saying is, I don't know if she's finally dead. I'm going to say that she's not because I'm Jesus. But Jesus, he goes on to put everyone outside except for those three disciples and the parents. And he says, as he grabs this little girl's hand, lifeless hand in his, he says in Aramaic, that's the, the language that Jesus spoke in, right? He says in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And here's what's crazy. She arose immediately. And and verse 42 says that they were immediately overcome with what? The people who saw it. Amazement. Here they are amazed again, right? See, then he strictly told them not to tell everyone and to give her a snack. Now, why did he say give her a snack? Well, I mean, I'm guessing it takes a lot of energy to die and be raised again from the dead. Right? you got to get that girl Snickers. So she gets, she gets fed, and, and then we see the story move on. Now, I'm just wondering, 
as he tells them not to tell anybody, how you keep a lid on the fact that Jesus raised somebody from the dead? And did you notice how easy it was for Jesus? Did you catch that? Not a lot of hoopla. Jesus, it it just looks so easy. And, And here's the funny thing. Not only is it easy for Jesus, but did you notice that he wasn't on full power? We know this because he just saved a woman. It says some of the power went out from him. So he wasn't even maximum charged, and he raised this girl easily from the dead. That's the power of Jesus. See, Jesus demonstrates here why Jairus didn't need to fear death. It's because Jesus has authority over death. Jesus took her hand and told her to arise, and she did. And Jesus, Jesus broke more of a sweat in the walk to her house than he did raising her from death to life. That's Jesus. Of course, this little girl would later die. It's true. How do we know that? Because everybody eventually dies. She's not still around telling her story. It's because Jesus would later not only show authority over death, He would do something greater. He would put death itself to death on the cross. See, this little girl's resurrection really was just a prequel of what Jesus would later do when he would die in your and my place on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve at death. And it was raised from the dead to declare to you and me that everyone who turns from living for sin to putting their faith in Him, in Christ, would receive what? Eternal life. Isn't that better than death? See, that's what Jesus brought at the cross and in His resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross put death to death. How do we know? He lives. Do you see how Jesus both silences our fear of death and solves the problem of death at the cross? Brothers and sisters, that's the hope that we have this morning. So what I want to do, I want to end with just um, really uh, five quick ways to help you scripturally silence the fear of death. Scriptures that ought to encourage your soul, even when confronted by death, your death, or maybe even worse, like Jairus, the death of your daughter or your spouse, someone you love deeply. How, how do you speak to yourself and others in those situations? Uh, please hear me. Maybe you're this, here this morning and you're thinking, I don't see death anywhere on my horizon. Well, it is. But maybe this morning you're just thinking, how is this going to be helpful to me where I'm at? Trust me. You are being equipped right now to help somebody who's going to face these circumstances if it's not you yourself. So how do you fight and kill the fear of death? Let me give you five quick ways. There are plenty, but I just want to get you started. One, you study the cross. You study the cross. You know, I I have personally three sons, three little boys, uh, five, nine, and ten. And uh, they do not fear death at all, and they're happier for it, right? So, so for example, here's what I mean. Like, I just talked to Johnny, who's in Florida right now at his grandmother's house. Uh, Johnny was telling me a story about how he climbed up on grandmother's roof. And his dream in life right now is to jump from the roof into grandmother's pool. Because that's what boys think about, right? The only thing that's keeping him is like six feet of concrete, and he really believes that he can make it. And so I'm like, Johnny, I don't think that's smart. I would really ask you as your father, I would implore you never to do that or think about it again. And he said, but dad, it would be awesome. And I'm thinking, yeah, Johnny, it would be awesome, but it's so stupid. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like a huge win for the risk that you're putting into this, right? 
got to really think about risk. It's not a good risk. But see, they do not fear because of what they do not know. That's what makes them happy. That's why they don't fear death. It's because they don't know. But hear me this morning. We should not fear because of what we do know. That's why we should fear. It's not because we're stupid or dumb to the fact of death and the reality of death, but it's because we understand death and what it is and what God has to say about it. It's really what the Gospel tells us. It's really the Word of God that ought to give us confidence before the face of death. The more that we understand who Jesus is, the more that it casts away all fears, including the fear of death itself. See, that that Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil at the cross ought to bring us great joy even amidst death. See, Hebrews 2, 14-16 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood with Jesus, He Himself partook of the same things that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see it? Let me tell you about who Jesus is and what He has done so that I might dispel the fear of death in your life. See, it's not avoiding the reality of death that makes us happy with death looming. It is the reality of Jesus and knowing more of Him and understanding it that brings us peace and joy before this scary intruder. Second, we need to understand the already not yet of death. We need to understand the already not yet of death. Yeah, I meant to say it that way. No, it's confusing, but here's what I mean. We know that Jesus defeated death at the cross, but people still die, right? And, and the reason is, is because the final execution of death will happen when Jesus returns. So I like to think about it this way. Death, its sentence has been set. When Jesus comes back, it is the last enemy, as 1 Corinthians 15.26 tells us. And on that day, we are promised that Jesus will put death to death finally and publicly so that there will never ever again be death for the rest of eternity. That's why it says there that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we need to look for that day. So how is it that Hebrews 2 tells us that death has been put to death and we should calm our fears? And in 1 Corinthians, we find in chapter 15 that it says it's the last enemy to put to death. Well, it's because Jesus has already secured the reality. It's coming. Jesus knows the future from the beginning. He says, look, this is the way the story ends. But until that day, understand that there will be, there will be folks, everyone will die. Until that final day when death itself is killed finally. But we can live in the hope knowing that all of us have eternal life in Christ. So that we even know that we who face death can even invite it knowing that it means that we will be in the presence of God forever. Changes the way that we understand death. Third, remember that Satan isn't in charge. Jesus is. Satan isn't in charge. Jesus is. Death is not in control. Christ is. Know that the Lord Himself has numbered your days. The the Lord did not consult with Satan, with sin, or with death about the day that you would die. That is not a joint project. God is sovereign over all things, including your day. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You hear that? The confidence of God? 
You will not add to your days. You will not take away from your days. God is sovereign over our days. See, God's not surprised by death. And Job, he goes on to tell us that Satan and death are really leashed dogs who only have as much leash as God's allowed them to have. Right? I mean, did Satan come and say, God, I'm just going to hurt Job and what are you going to do about it? No, he comes chained and groveling before God, right? Like, if you were to let me take his health from him, then he would turn and curse you. And what God allowed was an innocent sufferer to suffer before the hand of Satan and yet praise God and be blessed by God and be an image and a, an example for each of us every day, knowing that you and me can know that though we might face suffering, it is not because we are worse sinners than everybody else. Even innocent sufferers like Job suffered, right? We can know in the face of Job and others that we needed something more. We need Jesus. And Jesus defeated death at the cross. Four, not even death can separate you from the love of God. Maybe that's what you're fearful of. That at death you'll be separated from the love of God. Romans 8 tells us that nothing in heaven or on earth, things seen or unseen, will separate you from the love of God, including life or death. Nothing. We are so wrapped up in the love of God in Christ that nothing is going to separate us from His white knuckle grip. And if you want to know like good grips, God's got the best grip. Nobody rips you from the grip of God. That's what it means. So when we face death, we don't fear that we're going to in some ways fall out of the love of God. In fact, what we find is it gets better because fifth, death means more Jesus. Right? Philippians 1.21, Paul, living a difficult life of suffering, is thinking about it in his prison cell as he's writing a letter of encouragement to the Philippians. And he says, for me, to live Christ. Life is hard. Yeah, Christ. To die Gain. Gain what? More Jesus. I get to be in the presence of Christ, my Savior and Lord, seeing Him face to face, living in the presence of the Father forever. Death, you, you haven't robbed anything from me. You've given me a gift in God. See, death means more Jesus forever, freed from sin and death. Now, this morning, you, you might be here and you're a non-Christian and you're thinking, this sounds really crazy the way that we're talking about death. But I want you to know that the, the gospel is just crazy good. And if you are this morning here and you're thinking to yourself, I am scared to death of death, or you're thinking to yourself, I don't like to think about death, you need to think about death. You should be scared of death. See, the death for those who are not in Christ means the wrath of God. But friend, you can be in Christ today. You can put your faith in Him. You can repent of your sins. Your de destiny can change. Your identity can change. You can no longer be an enemy of God, but a child of God. And we would love nothing more than to talk to you about how to make that a reality. In fact, right now, uh, I've asked some of our elders and their wives to come on down, and, and y'all can come on down. And we're going to be praying for people for different things. Maybe you have a sickness that you'd like us to pray for. We've got the elders here ready to James 5 pray for you. Uh, maybe this morning you just need a, a prayer for encouragement and something that's going on in your life. Uh, maybe it could be this morning uh, that uh, perhaps you are here and you're not a believer and you'd like for the elders just to pray for you. Pray that, that you would seek and find God in Christ. Uh, we would love to pray for those things for you this morning. So what I want to do, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Uh, after I do, the band's going to play a little bit. 
And uh, please take this opportunity to come and let us pray for you and pray that God would heal sicknesses, save the lost, and bring about His glory through us. Let's pray.